0: Sometimes having a, a new location that doesn't go well is almost as valuable as having ones that go well insofar as there's a learning opportunity. You, you do have to be prepared for everything not to go according to plan. So be flexible at the same time as, you, as you're building your business.
1: This is Pete Moore here on Halo Talks NYC. We are inside the Halo Academy with my partner, Richard Pyle, Senior Managing Director at Integrity Square slash Halo Advisors. Richard, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Pete. And thank you for the promotion. That's fantastic. You just
1: got a promotion from Managing Director to Senior Managing Director. Uh, That'll be in 2018 right when vista print runs their next promotion on business cards <laughs> anyway um now richard and i have been uh, been partners now for for five years i've been doing uh private equity transactions and m a transactions in the industry since 1999 he's been doing that for longer than i have so why don't you give our listeners all all a a version of your storied background in the health and fitness industry
0: the highlights uh well i was one of the founding partners of um Council International. I was the CFO of that company for 20 years, and uh, when I started with the company, we had five units and five million dollars of revenue. And with my team of partners, we helped build that business to 160 locations and 500 million of revenue. And on the way, we had done capital raising, both private equity and a public equity raise, an IPO, and uh, We built and bought businesses along the way. So since joining Integrity Square, it's given me a great insight into, as a buyer, what you need to understand about buying a business, especially in the halo sector. And um, having done an IPO is that you are essentially selling a business in the halo sector. So uh, a great experience. And then since joining uh, Pete at Integrity Square, coming up to nearly six years ago now, have found out what it's like to be an intermediary between the buyer and the seller. So uh, I would say I got a pretty good all-round
1: experience in what's needed. Great, it's been invaluable to have you on the team and I'm I'm glad we've been partners for for this long. Um, What we wanna talk about today is really somewhat of an informal conversation about the life cycle of a company and when you can continue to grow it on your own, um, the risk rewards of doing that and then also bringing in outside capital the benefits of that and also the constraints and, and some of the things you need to modify and ask permission to do when you have someone else's money. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I think this is a a
0: sort of a really gets to the core of an ambitious person who has a great business idea and can execute on that. There are moments in your life when you're going to need partners or you're going to need capital. And, um, various phases of a business life, go along with those different needs. And I think entrepreneurs should be ready to tackle those events because they're very, very important. There are times in a company's life when you need the help of outsiders and it's usually in terms of money and advice.
1: Yeah, so why don't we just start off and um, assume that I'm building one health club in New York City. I might get a 20,000 square foot facility I can personally guarantee the debt. Maybe I'll take out an SBA loan, do the build out, buy the equipment, have that one location. Assuming that one location goes well, I might be able to go and sign a second uh, location on a lease. But now I am now saddled with probably up to $5 million of uh, of an SBA loan that, that I'm personally guaranteed on and potentially a lease that uh, is a 10 to 15 year lease with a personal guarantee on, on that as well. So, you know, at some point in the business, you look at your, your assets and then you look at your personal uh, exposure. You know, there are times when you might say, you know, uh, this is a little too much risk on the on the downside case that I want to form a, a corporation and I want to bring in some outside capital. So maybe you want to use the, the TSI as kind of a, a launching pad of of how that was grown and then the equity that came in.
0: Absolutely, yeah. As as you said, Pete, there's a moment where the financial risk starts to become real. You, you as a business owner and operator, probably have a good sense of what your operational risk is and what are the plus and minuses of of doing what you do each day and doing what you do each year. But financial risk is something you can't ignore. And as you said, you co-signing a lease or you are guaranteeing a lease or you are co-signing a loan. Um, those are real, have real downside repercussions. So in my, in my uh, life at, at Town Sports, we tried to grow without capital. We didn't have a great access to it. So we tried to partner. We tried to do um, partnerships with landlords. We've, we, we tried management agreements. We had probably, I would say, 30 different styles of, of, of ways of accessing money or um, space you know, property space. And that was just the way it had to be. We didn't have access to money, and that was gonna be the way we grew for a certain period of time. I think my biggest piece of advice in that area is, you have to think forward and think, I'm going. this is the way I'm going to get into this partnership, but I have to figure out the way I have to get out at some point if I so choose. So you have to, with the help of legal counsel, in often cases, you have to know that uh, this is going to be a partnership that I would I will really thrive with, but I need to know at the other end of it when all partners are not aligned that you have to find the, the right formula to get out of it as well. So um, during early stages of life at Town Sports, as I said, we did fairly complex deals to get access to money and it took us probably a, a longer time period to exit those deals when they became no longer the, the right way for the company to go forward. But certainly size mattered, and building sizes, anyone who's starting up a venture knows you you get exposure to a lot more, a lot more opportunity. So you sometimes have to do things along the way, but um, be fully aware of some of the commitments you're making have to be unwound at some point.
1: That's great. So if we take a step back and say, you know, pick up on that I've got two locations in New York City, two health clubs for, for explanatory purposes. I am the 100% owner of those two locations. I've got some debt on there, I uh, put in a little bit of equity, and I've got uh, my signature on uh, these leases to landlords. There's really only four ways that I can grow the next set of locations. One is I can take the cash that I've generated from those two locations and parlay that into the build out of the next several clubs. Uh, I can go to a landlord, as you referenced, and I can ask the landlord, hey, build this location out for me, and I'll pay it back to you in tenant improvement dollars as part of the lease that I'm going to pay you over a 10-year term, and Richard to expand on that later. Um, I can go to a bank, and I can say, hey, look how great I've done with my current business. Will you guys loan me money? So you can build it based on debt, or you can sell a piece of equity in your business, whether it's to wealthy investors, whether it's to... Family offices, whether it's to institutional funds, or whether it's you know someone that, that, that you know that or a member that wants to, um, to put some money into your location. so as you think through each one of those, you know I think one of the issues with a number of companies is that they grow too fast, and their operations kind of aren't up to speed with the vision of the owner of the company. So Richard, as you grew. New York sports clubs systematically. You know, how did you kind of toggle between what can we actually take on from an infrastructure standpoint for and what can we finance?
0: It's a, it's a really, really delicate balance. And it's something that you must never forget to do. I think w- one of the checklists for success is you have to have a plan. You have to have um, a knowledge that you're going to bring in different capabilities, be that in terms of your if you're bringing in a CFO, or you're bringing in a, a head of uh, marketing, or bringing in a head of operations, you have to know when you should be, you should need to afford those human assets. And at the same time, as Peter was referring, you have to be, know when you need to bring in a bank or a new landlord, or you have to know and have a plan. All plans, you know, are just that they are just a—it's a roadmap, really. You won't necessarily hit that plan along the way, but you, you need to know the general direction you're gonna take the business. So you need to have the ability, and when you're thinking about um, bringing in outside capital and spe- specifically you need to know what those providers of that capital are gonna need. They're gonna need regular financial statements. They're gonna make sure. need to know that your operating risk is low. They're going to need to know that you have a game plan and a set of, let's call them projections, but you need to you be, you need to know and articulate to them that you believe what you're going to do
1: is going to actually be the outcome
0: that you, that everybody wants.
1: So here we are with two locations. We figured out a way to get to four locations. We've got a good brand, uh, in New York, maybe in a uh, club in Westchester, a club in Long Island. And, um, we see that we we're running these operations well the clubs are packed and we say look you know we think we can go from 4 to 8 we can go to 8 to, to 12 12 to 16 a bank is not going to say i'd love to fund your vision you know equity is designed to back your story to back your plan and to back your team and i don't want the team to be left as third but it's probably first so you know richard as we look at clients and and define which ones you know could get institutional capital or or a poise for growth you know maybe we can give someone a inside window into how we look at things
0: absolutely and i think one other thing we should say is that a lot of people think well the first step is to go to a bank remember lenders are not looking for the the upside they're looking to get their Capital returned and a reasonable return on the capital. So, the 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 blue sky is not necessarily what interests the bank. Uh, it is the uh, it's the repayment over a long time. And as Pete mentioned, the the if you're raising equity, which might necessarily be your next step in this in this uh, progression that you have going here, the providers of equity are the ones who are looking for the upside here, uh, with some downside protection. What also should be said here is that, let's say, Pete's hypothetical example, you're going to get opportunities that come to you. Uh, If you've got a great business with four locations and you start to think, well, maybe I can replicate this and let's target opening eight, let's target opening 12, you have to prioritize. Opportunities will come to you if you have a good business. Uh, Other people will notice and... uh, Maybe it's a landlord comes to you, maybe it's a new partner comes to you. So you have to be able to learn, let's take the the best priorities. Uh, let's not just take the first thing that comes along. Be very selective and be very sure that the game plan that you've established for your first four is gonna be the game plan that's successful for your next four and the next eight and so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, and I think when, when we look at businesses, you know, we get the the opportunity to look at them you know, in a rear view mirror and the management team explains to us, you know, that that location didn't go well. And there's usually a story. each one. There's There's always a story. There's always a story. It's either, you know, it was a great rent deal and the supermarket went out and the, the real, the developer was going to redo the entire shopping plaza. And we just needed to be the first tenant in. And then there's no other tenants in the, in there because they didn't wait until that, you know, those other deals got signed. Sometimes, Having a,
0: a new location that doesn't go well is almost as valuable as having ones that go well insofar as there's a learning opportunity. Uh, I remember we had what appeared to be a great opportunity to build a new location in Baltimore. It was very hard to finance, so we had to do a lot of loan guarantees, and it was, it was complicated. Turned out the location... Was not one that we'd ever tried before. It was in a downtown area where there was a it was a, a very high turnover population, and the daytime, nighttime population was also significantly different. Daytime was fantastic, nighttime was terrible. So for many reasons, uh, that location was not a financial success. It was wrong sized. It had the wrong facilities. We made every mistake. But I actually look back on that that um, that attempt at growth, as being a great learning experience, it was. It was the moment when, you know, what we learned the five things that we should never do again, and and hopefully that turned out to be our to our to our advantage. But uh, you you do have to be prepared for everything not to go according to plan. So be flexible at the same time as you as you're building your business.
1: Yeah, and, and some of the other you know stories or or, or s- scenarios that we've seen along the way is when a health club operator tries to basically go along with Home Depot um, and open up the next uh, location in the next town. Well, Home Depot is there because there's a lot of construction going on and the people actually don't live there yet. Um, So they're going there first because they're the advanced team or Lowe's is the advanced team. Then the residential community gets built. And then that property in that strip center becomes the go-to strip center. So if you go in there two years before the residential area is built out, you're probably gonna be losing money for two years. It's gonna take up 70 to 80% of your time. And when a equity investor comes in and looks at that, you know, they might say, okay, it looks like you're right, but you're off on your timing," which is an indication of how you think about building locations and how you assess, you know, the, the demographics and assess you know, the risk of and reward of, of potentially entering into a, a location that's not an a location yet. I mean, I think uh, I think you're absolutely right. There are
0: some very sophisticated tools out there to help people who are operating retail units or, or service units that are akin to retail. There's a lot of uh, assistance you can get in terms of um, location services, understanding traffic patterns, household incomes. Sometimes you... You do have to take a little bit of a flyer. Um, as you said, you can have an unsuccessful uh, venture that's in a, a location that hasn't yet been really really got there in terms of its demos. Sometimes you have to do that if you're prepared if you're prepared to do that so that you can be the first mover. you have to weigh up if you have the financial capabilities to remain not quite as successful as you want initially, if over the long term you believe that uh, it's, it's going to be a, a profitable unit over time.
1: So you're, you're up to eight locations and you've got a management team. It's 100% owned by probably the operators uh, of the company. Now they're personally guaranteed on eight leases. The loans have gotten higher. The equipment leases have gotten higher. They look at their personal financial statement and there's probably 10 to $20 million worth of contingent liability. And they're running an operation now that's not within a 20 minute drive of their house. And what typically happens is Integrity Square Halo Advisors will get a call and say, Hey, look, I'm, I, w- I wanna grow and I wanna take some money off the table. Is there a partner that would potentially back me to take this to the next level? Maybe offload some of the risk of the deal uh, and give me some incremental upside so I don't have to finance the next phase of growth. So you know, do you wanna go through together you know, back and forth here on some of the things that, that, that CEO slash owner, you know, needs to calibrate. And obviously this is going to be as a checklist in the, in the Academy, but you know, things for, for people to really think about hard. I
0: think, I think um, that that moment where you're, where you can really see the upside to your business, you have to be ready to bring in a partner. And that is a moment. That's a, a pretty big one in the life of a company, because Partners inevitably need things. They need to understand what their risk is that they're taking. They need to understand the performance of the business that they're investing in. They need to know that fairly regularly. And they need to know that the decisions are being made either collectively or uh, by the owner of the the original owner of the business are the right ones. They don't want to go off track. They I think one of the watchwords is stick to your knitting. Don't start to diversify before you've really, really nailed down your business model. But those, those new owners, let's say you're a successful and you've used Integrity Square to help you raise some uh, capital. What do those owners need? Well, they need some form of governance in your business. They need to know you're running it correctly. They don't need to worry about risks that, that they're taking that they're not really hearing about. They want to hear the good news, they want to hear the bad news. want to hear that regularly. So you have to make sure you've built an infrastructure that can help feed that need. Typically if you're borrowing as as well from a a bank that has been bought in by a a private equity owner, you're going to need to report to that bank very regularly. There are are bank covenants that have to be adhered to, so you you have to stay within those requirements that the bank is lending under. there are things you have to perform. You have to perform on a profitability level. You have to perform by not wastefully uh, using your resources, and I mean potentially buying or or building business assets that you don't necessarily core to your operation. You need to know that you're running your business in the most efficient manner. So there's a string of reporting requirements that both of these new partners you have uh, will 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 expect. And you have to have an infrastructure that is ready to provide that to them either monthly, quarterly, or annually. So be ready for that. It's not, it should not be a surprise. Uh, these are professional investors in, in many cases, and this is how
1: professional companies get built. So to to give people somewhat of a refresher course or, or what is private equity, if you're an investor in the stock market, you're investing in public equities. There there are groups which are mostly small, call them shops or equity firms that have aggregated money from either school endowment funds, pension funds, high net worth investors, any any other entity that's looking to diversify their asset classes. So if I am the New York University endowment fund, I might have X amount of dollars in the public markets, X amount of dollars in real estate, X amount of dollars in private equity. And those private equity funds are basically a team of men and women who have been successful in the past investing in private companies, putting money behind either growing industries, using financial leverage to make money, or backing management teams that either have been successful or that they're taking a risk that are going to be successful. Typically, those companies all need to have positive cash flow or EBITDA, as we use earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, which is basically the cash flow uh, of a business. And they are not looking to take venture capital risk on your idea on a PowerPoint. They're looking to help you grow your business from, in this case, eight health clubs to 16 and then to 24 and then to 36 and then to sell it when it has three or four times the amount of EBITDA or cash flow um, and really work with you over a five-year period to help you build the infrastructure, the analyses, do the work on the real estate, like Richard has said, and really optimize the business so the next potential buyer will pay a premium for that company and then go from 36 to 72. And then that group sells it to the next group from 72 to 144. Um, that's about where my math is going to tap out. Um, so, uh, at each one of these phases, you're going to have different types of private equity groups, but they're all trained in the same type of metrics to, to help manage the business. They all are concerned about governance. They're all concerned about, you know, you're signing an employment agreement and you are working for them, or you are in a position where they're effectively renting you capital and they're looking for a return, as, as Richard mentioned, with the with the debt side. So uh, as you think through the evolution of your business, there's a point that you're either gonna say, you know, I wanna sell my business because I'm not willing to grow this on my own, or I might wanna take an outside capital, and there's thousands of private equity investors now, whereas 15 years ago, there was less than 100 I uh, think, private equity groups.
0: Yeah, I think, I think one of the things to say, private, in equity investors come in many, many colors. As Pete mentioned before, there are, there are what's called venture capital. Those are private investors, but they, uh, they're essentially investing at a very early stage in a business. And they may indeed invest in 10 different businesses and have one success. So they, 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 they do spread their investment around a lot. Private equity investors, traditional private equity investors, tend to be further along in the in the risk spectrum, at lower risk, that is, uh, and they can invest in more proven business models uh, with a view, as as Pete mentioned, to, to to growing the business significantly over a time period. These guys, as I mentioned before, have just as much a plan as as you should, which is this is my investing. I'm going to do here, I'm going to help them along the way, and then I'll likely sell. Or, in the, uh, in the ultimate success, may even take a business public. Uh, but those guys have a lot of access to capital, and they're constantly doing the math that, uh, is this a business I should continue to invest in, or is it a business I should sell, or bring in other investors to partner with? So they're constantly doing that, And you should consider those guys a great resource, but also consider
1: the fact that they have their own goals. That's great. So we've run a number of these processes to bring in capital. And that process typically is identifying a five-year plan and determining how much cash you need to execute on that plan. In a lot of these transactions, we come up with a valuation for the company. The owner typically tries to take some money off the table, typically they're most if not all their net worth is is in the business. Now they're potentially giving up control of that business to a private equity group. And there's, that would be called a dividend recap. And then the owner would have the CEO title likely um, have a employment agreement. His or her team would have an option plan, um, which could be anywhere between five to 15% of the upside of the company. And the private equity firm would be really responsible for the financings of the company, approving new locations and any big capital expenditures, and really putting uh, the company on a path to double in size, uh, which would equate to a 15 to 30% what's called an IRR, which is internal rate of return. So for every dollar that they're investing, they're looking for that to be worth a dollar $1.30 uh, in year one and continue to to uh, increase at that compounded rate. And then year five is when they actually get their money, when they sell the business and they sell the business with you uh, to the next group or to a strategic buyer like an LA Fitness or a 24 Hour, uh, in this example of the health clubs. And um, you know, picking the right partner is likely the most important marriage you are going to enter into. And it is as important as a marriage from a personal standpoint, um, if we equate it to the business standpoint, so maybe go, maybe we'll take a couple of minutes and kind of go through some of the the questions that we, you know, think about or that we have our clients or people that are looking to do private equity deals. And this will be in the the academy as a template, but really to understand who you're partnering up with, because you're partnering up with people that make up a firm that are running capital, and there's nuances and cultures and Operational ways that they do business, that they get a reputation for good, bad, or indifferent, and those things need to be diligence, just like you would diligence a new employee um, at the highest level and a a partner. So, Richard, you want to you want to hit on a couple of the important ones that we've gone through several times.
0: I oh uh, yeah sure the. One of the things is the time horizon. I think that you have to understand that the, your new investor is going to invest over. Some private equity groups will talk of a five, four to five to six year investment period. Others, which can be, for instance, let's call them family offices, may have a much longer um, uh, investment timeline. So I think a family office is often a, 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 a another form of private equity that has, has, has maybe has different um, investment criteria. They may like to own assets for a longer term, uh, be looking for a different type of um, taxable or non-taxable return. So you, you understand the time horizon of your investor and what that means to your business plan, and if that business plan can can um, fit snugly into their their investment horizon. Really, how the investor structures the investment in your company. Uh, typically, uh, they do it by way of what's called preferred investment, insofar as they would have, uh, let's call it first dibs on money coming out of a company. Uh, so you're essentially put behind those guys. And the way they think about that, the reason they think about their investing in such a strategy is that typically, if you've taken money out at your, at your money raising um, instant, you essentially have had the first money out and they really feel that they're, they're due, it's their turn after yours. So um, you, have to, you have to understand quite how, in, shall we call it the preference is for the investment and it, if it's one that is, ranks alongside you or is senior to yours. Typically, uh, these investors will charge a man, uh, an annual management fee and that will come out, be paid by the company. Uh, that you, you, you jointly, now jointly own. So uh, understand that their participation in the management, sitting on the board of directors, uh, being involved heavily in governance, costs them money uh, because they are actually paying uh, their invest, investment professionals to monitor your company. And so uh, they will charge a fee for that service. Uh, and that can often be a surprise to uh, to, to 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 companies when that
1: when that, when that happens. And depending on the size of the company, that could be anywhere between $250,000 a, uh, a year to uh, upwards of 5% of the EBITDA. And that's basically to cover the cost of that oversight on behalf of the private equity firm to run their, their overhead. Uh, and we can get into more detail online inside the Academy on that. Um, Just a couple more points, and and there's a list here uh, online, but to think about what your company is worth and to really understand the upside of the company uh, and the downside that somebody's trying to mitigate against, especially in the health club industry, to really understand your membership trends, your your margins, uh, how much your rent is as a percentage of revenue, Other new competitors that are already in your area? Is there a lot of vacant real estate, which seems like a blessing because you can grow quickly and a curse because so can someone else. So when you really look at at your business, there's typical ways to value the business. One would be by looking at uh, what we call M&A comps, which would be other transactions that have traded that your advisor or us would have information on. So if a company trades at, six times EBITDA, as we like to use, or one times revenue, uh, and you have a similar profile and a similar geography, that is a a, a good sample set of a multiple of what your business is worth. Um, and as you get enough transactions that have taken place and you have good intel on what those are, you could pretty much get into a, a relatively tight range that the buyer and the seller can agree that these characteristics, you know, are, here's the, the bid ask. I that think that type of transaction.
0: Pete, to add to that, I think the trage- trajectory of your business is also very important on your um, on your multiple, uh, your valuation multiple, essentially. If you are a steady business, you're going to get a, ma- a, a middle-of-the-range multiple. If you are a fast-growing business, uh, then you will be accordingly uh, valued. Uh, a lot of people do get stuck in the concept that they, they hear a business traded at seven times cash flow, that might have been a business that was growing pretty rapidly at really fast growing demographics. A lot, there's a lot of things that could feed into that, but it may be very well positioned technologically or many reasons that can, can um, cre- create that, that, that multiple valuation. So look at your own business if you're thinking about valuation and, and, and see the trajectory. Is your business growing? Is it, is it static or has it got potential? or is it in fact going backwards? And in, in that case, your, your valuation multiple will be uh, lower to say the least.
1: Yeah, and as we look at companies, um, what we always like to say, when, when you go into a transaction, run your business like you are going to continue to own your business. Don't run your business in the assumption that you are gonna sell it because you make decisions that aren't in the best interest of your long-term value proposition, and if a transaction doesn't come through, but you wanted to put three new locations in the ground because you wanted to show X amount of growth, but those locations didn't have the same uh, characteristics from a profitability standpoint, or from a, a density standpoint, or or you know the the type of location that you want to put in a, in a specific market, you know someone's going to snuff that out. So. Run your business like you're going to continue to own it, make the right disciplined decisions. If you're it's opportunistic, then you do it and assume that someone's going to pay you for the right decisions that you make. When you're doing a transaction, just like you're selling a house or you're selling a car, you typically don't get the last dollar. The buyer usually comes back and does some inspection and finds out that there's a, a leaky pipe or they're going to have to uh, tear out your swimming pool or... You weren't permitted to have that uh, that back area or your porch area, and, and you get dinged for that. And I think some of the people that are selling companies assume that they've built a business for 10 to 15 to 20 years and are, you know, are due the last dollar uh, on a deal. I, I can't
0: endorse that comment more highly, Pete, because I think it's very distracting to, to, to sell a business anyway, and you will be given credit for the fact that you're, if you're operating your business through a process of raising money uh, in the same manner as you always operated it, you, that will be deemed very positively. Also, don't underestimate a private equity buyer. These are very intelligent people who in often cases have done many transactions like this before. Diligence is very detailed. And it can be distracting. We'll talk about that separately. But they will find the warts. And if you're open and, up and honest about them and upfront and maybe even have a plan to take care of the the, the the problems that you have in your business, that will be viewed very much more highly than if they find about the, out about those things later. So I uh, can't, uh, as Pete said, run the business as well as you can at all times. The other thing I think worth mentioning here is it's a process, raising money uh, in the private equity arena is a process that can be successful, it's not always, and uh, it's distracting. So you have to run the business as though, I think as Pete said, you're, you're not gonna raise money, You but you would be ha- very happy if you do, because uh, you don't want to be in a process that is unsuccessful and then turn around and see that you have neglected a very important part of your business, your sales momentum, your, uh, your revenue streams ha- should all be looked after just as, 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 as much as when you were running it without thinking about raising money.
1: And, um, you just, just in closing here, I think, um, it's important to note that when you take someone else's capital and you agree to a growth plan, that growth plan is now your life. And that, if you said, I'm going to raise $20 million and I'm gonna go from New York and I'm gonna go build locations in DC and Philly and Boston and, and Chicago, assume that that if you are the CEO of the business or you're the COO or the CFO, uh, when you sign the papers to take in that growth capital, you can't say the next day, you know what, we don't feel like traveling to Chicago, so we're gonna take that off the list. or. I don't want to go to D.C. I don't like the Amtrak. So I want to go to see my kid's soccer game, you know, every Thursday. And that's just the way it's going to be. So from a standpoint of, of what you sign up for and, and how that governs, you know, your, your, your life, you know, you want to line up your business uh, objectives, you know, and say, OK, look, I'm, I think I can make a lot of money and I think I can have a good time doing it with people I want to work with. But you, there are trade-offs to everything. So if you want to raise private equity, you know, get an advisor and a lawyer and, and talk to people that have done it and people that have been successful with it and, and would recommend it. And some people say, you know what, that just wasn't for me. If you've got 10 clubs and you're doing well and you don't have to travel much and that's your aspiration, there's nothing wrong with that highlight reel. Um, so I think there's some people that seek to get private equity and outside investors because it's the thing that they think they're supposed to do, but you have to do what is good for you. So maybe you want to add on to that. No,
0: I completely agree with you. I mean, you can, and in often cases, we help clients do this. You can sell your business outright, uh, but you can't expect to get a premium valuation if, uh, you're selling a business that has suddenly has no management team and, and a new investor is going to have to put their own team in place uh, and figure out what, what's what's what been going all along. So maximizing valuation usually means that you're partnering with someone going forward. Uh, if you want to minimize valuation, then sell your
1: business outright if you can find a buyer. Right. So there's, there's a lot more background on that in some of the other podcasts, as well as uh, inside the Academy and uh, continued success and measured success. Thank you, Richard. Thanks, Pete.